Common Investing Now, a show that teaches you how to take a long-term view on investing by better understanding what's happening in the market now. Thank you, Samantha Bailey. Good afternoon, 7investors, and welcome to the Wednesday edition of 7investing Now. My name is Daniel Brooks-Klein, but you can call me Dan. My friends, call me Dan. I'm joined today by Manisha Sammy and Simon Erickson. Guys, we are a week and one day outside of Thanksgiving. It's going to be a really weird Thanksgiving. I actually spent last Thanksgiving on a cruise ship, which was also strange. This year, it's going to be myself, my wife, and my son, an order from Honey Baked Ham, and that's about it. Simon, what are you planning on doing? That's about the same plan for us here, Dan. Spend some time with family and some much-needed time away from work. Manisha, how about you? That's all uh, I've big, got. <laughs> big gathering, lots of, uh, you know, lots of COVID spreading. No, I'm, of course not. What are you planning? <laughs> uh, wish I had more time with family, but nope, it'll be kind of a solo Thanksgiving this year, maybe uh, connected to uh, the internet. You are welcome to zoom into our sad Thanksgiving meal. But guys, this is 7investing now. We cover the news of the day, but with a long-term perspective. We take your comments. No matter what platform you're watching this, you can share comments, and we will make an effort to get relevant ones in to answer them there. And of course, a big part of the show today is going to be focusing on questions you asked us on Twitter. Uh, but before we get to that, I want to check in on a couple of stories. We're going to, we're going to change the format a little bit today because there's some big news breaking. Nisha, you're up first. Pfizer has said its vaccine has finished testing, and it's 95% effective. The company plans to ask for FDA approval this week. It's gonna get it. Don't don't want to uh, don't want to break anything. But the FDA is not saying no here. Um, the biggest issue is production. Are there feasible ways for them to make this faster? Can they contract out to other companies that maybe don't have successful vaccine candidates? So I think that will be a bit difficult. So mRNA-based vaccines, um, they're a bit nuanced. Um, in terms of producing it, it's fairly inexpensive and it's quick, uh, but you do need very stable conditions. So if uh, a manufacturing facility is not equipped uh, to get up and running, it, it would take about you know three months to get to there. Um, right now, the guidance is by the end of 2020, they should have about 50 million doses uh, ready um, they have currently four sites in the U.S. and uh, in the uh, in Europe we have Belgium and then Germany. Um, Pfizer has guided that by mid 2021 they should have enough doses to um, vaccinate basically all of Germany. Um, so right now it's we are where we are at. Um, there are other vaccine companies. Uh, earlier this week, uh, Max. Uh, our colleague um, talked about Moderna's data as well. They're also mRNA based. So while we would only have 50 million doses by the end of the year, uh, you can expect other uh, mRNA based uh, companies to come up with vaccines and use their facilities uh, to help kind of with the production levels. So we talked on our podcast last night about how there could be as many as six, seven, even eight vaccines. Is how quick this happens? Are there types of vaccines that are easier to produce than these mRNA vaccines? I think at this point, um, mRNA vaccines um, are the easiest to produce in the sense that they're the least expensive. Um, you have monoclonal antibodies. Um, those are the tried and true ways of making vaccines. They just take a little bit longer, uh, a little bit more expensive. So I think if you're looking at a cheap way, mRNA is the way to go. However, um, so that comes with more kind of logistical issues that we have to uh, overcome. Uh, for example, the Pfizer vaccine, uh, you have to store it at uh, minus 70 degrees Celsius. Uh, so that is, uh, sorry, Fahrenheit. Um, 
And that is a challenge, especially for distribution globally. Thank you, Manisha. I look forward to the day where we don't have to discuss vaccines here on 7 Investing Now. But Simon, in one of the more 2020 things that's happened this year, the 737 MAX, it's back. It can fly. The plane that just falls out of the sky because the software wasn't good is back. Does this change anything for, for Boeing when it comes to your investing thesis? It's still a challenging environment for Boeing out there, Dan. And as you said, the 737 is very important to the thesis. Uh, but again, this is a tough company to invest in. It's very capital intensive. It takes a long time for them to go out there and get orders. And the question is going to remain of how many of these 737 maxes that they've already produced are they actually going to be able to deliver? Don't forget that Boeing over at the beginning of 2020, at the beginning of 2019, excuse me, had a backlog of over 3,000 planes that was committed to for the 737. But more than 400 of those have already gotten canceled or pushed out because of COVID concerns, because of trust concerns with the autopilot safety feature. And so now the question for investors becomes how many of those orders actually are going to, to play through? We've seen American Airlines say that they're going to have start having commercial flights on the 737 MAX in December. We've seen a United and Southwest say that they're probably going to pick back up operations with it in 2021. But at the end of the day, Dan, this is a company that sells airplanes. Demand is very low right now. They're burning through cash flow. And so it's kind of a waiting game for investors. Might be a good time for us to pick up the seven investing jet so we can get all around the country. <laughs> uh, I've been lobbying for that. Simon keeps saying no, but guys, we're going to pivot to our top story. Today, what we did is we went to Twitter. We asked you to ask us questions. What did you want to hear about? And, and a lot of you responded. We're not going to get to all of them, but we have a bunch of them lined up. Chooch asked us, how many stocks should I have in my portfolio? I had around 20 before joining Seven Investing for the last nine, over the last nine months, you've recommended 57 different stocks with six repeats by my count. They have almost all look like very good ideas. That's why we recommend them. They are mostly all good ideas, or at least they were at the time we recommended them. I'm going to start with Simon. How do you decide how many stocks go in your portfolio? Yeah, Church, this is a great question. And it's also very personalized. So we can't tell anybody specifically what they should do. But our strategy with Seven Investing is to kind of give you the buffet of options to choose from. Are you looking for a dividend paying lower risk stock that you want to add in? Are you looking for a very high risk genomic stock that you want to shoot for the moon for? And so we kind of lay out seven options every month and then leave it up to investors to decide which one's the best. But in terms of the number of stocks in a portfolio, I always consider 10 stocks to be a more concentrated portfolio, an average of 10% going into each one of those positions, and 30 stocks to be a very fully diversified portfolio. So it's different for everybody. Um, you know, It kind of depends on how much research do you want to do into a bunch of different stocks or just a handful of stocks. Uh, my tradable account right now has 27 different positions in it, so it's a little bit more diversified, but it also helps that, that me and Dan are looking at this 18 hours a day every single day of the week. <laughs> yeah, and so I do it two ways. I have my 10 to 15 stocks that are companies I really care about that I follow. Then I have my little basket of things I'm doing to sort of change up my investing style. We've talked about how I'm going to buy Max's stock every month for a year. I'm not looking at that. I will only look at that if something really pops to go, okay, what happened? What? Because I didn't buy that based on my personal conviction. I bought that the way many of you would, is making a decision based on the different seven investing advisors. And I went with the one that's actually the most different than me. I might have gone with Manisha had she joined a month sooner. But Manisha, how many stocks in your portfolio and do you go outside your core competence? 
so to be honest, I stick to uh, investing in stocks that I am fully comfortable with. Um, and, and a lot of people might think it's risky, but they're almost exclusively genomic stocks or technology stocks that um, help enable genomics. So I do have NVIDIA, uh, for example, in terms of powering uh, DNA sequencing. Um, I am a bit, so I would say that 80% of my capital is allocated to the top 10 companies that I invest in. Uh, I have roughly anywhere between 18 to 21. Um, I like to feel fully comfortable and confident uh, in the stocks that I'm investing in before um, I allocate kind of, a, or if I have a higher position in those companies. Yeah, so there's no right answer here. But the one thing I would say is make sure that if you don't have you know, more than 10, that you don't have one that's become such a big percentage of your portfolio that it keeps you up at night, especially if it's a more risky stock. You know, if you own a whole bunch of Amazon and that, uh, you know, that's 30% of your portfolio, you might be okay. If it's a more risky, you know, genomic stock, you might want to pare down, but it is very, very personal. Guys, moving on to question two. Uh, this is from Rayal. Uh, he wants to know whether we should invest in index funds along with the seven investing picks. Um, Simon, why don't you explain what an index fund is and then talk about sort of your personal relationship to them? Yeah, I mean, index funds is, is a great solution for most investors. It's kind of riding the the performance of the S&P 500 or anything else that has an index tracking it, maybe certain sectors of the market you want exposure to, but you don't want to be digging into individual names. So a lot of investors will buy ETFs, will buy passive investments, you know, that, that are tracked with index funds uh, at the fundamental level for those because they want exposure to something, but they don't want to get into really the nitty gritty of individual picks. And I think those are great, Dan. Uh, it's a different approach than we take at Seven Investing. We're actually looking for individual equities that we're buying and recommending. Uh, but I do think that, that there's really nothing wrong with that strategy. I don't have anything against index funds. Yeah, it's something I'm a big fan of and say like your 401k or other places where you might not be allowed to buy individual stocks. Uh, and it can give you exposure. You know, we've asked this question, do you own Amazon? And people say no. And the reality is they probably do in their retirement vessel. I'm going to take a question live from the chat. I'm going to throw it to Manisha. So I'll give her a second to be prepared. A question for all panelists. This is from uh, Tirith P. If you narrow down to two similar companies with a great story and fundamentals, what is are the differentiating factors that would make you choose one? one over another. For me, it's always management. But uh, Manisha, what would your thoughts be here? I agree with you, Dan. Uh, the first thing I do when I'm looking at a company is looking at the management team. Do they have the right DNA, background experience in executing what they're trying to achieve? Um, I think if I don't trust the CEO, if I don't trust, uh, especially for a genomics company, if I don't trust um, the scientific rigor that the uh, C-suite has, then I don't necessarily have uh, faith in that company. So that is first and foremost, being able to trust them. You have to take their word for um, you know, what they're trying to achieve and what they're accomplishing, especially when it comes to genomics, when there's already so many questions. Um, the second thing I look at is platform technology. What are they using? Are they using the cheapest um, available technologies? Um, is it accelerating the pace of uh, growth? So there are definitely a number of things that I do look at, but management, the technology they're using, but then also execution. Every You can have everything that aligns perfectly well, but previously and historically, have they actually met the guidance that they've set forth? Um, if not, what are the holes that need to be addressed? So I do like uh, starting off management and then kind of, so top down and then kind of the final parts, um, actually looking at the uh, 
you know, you know, where are they trading at? Um, are they overpriced? Are they um, undervalued? So that's the final thing I'll look at. If I like two companies, I tend to buy both. Understand management is difficult. It means you know listening to earnings calls. It's not just resume because generally the CEO of a company is going to have a pretty impressive looking resume. It really is sometimes. Does this person do what they say they're going to do? So you listen to the Q1 call and here she says, here's the problem. Uh, here's how we're going to fix it. And then you go a couple of quarters down. Did that person fix the problem as they said the w- they would? We're going to move on to friend, new investor book. Uh, and he wants to know, I know you talk a lot about great companies that were winning before COVID-19 and will win after it's gone, but still got a boost. But what companies are winning now, but will not be doing as well after COVID-19 is under control? I want to take this first. I'll give Simon and Manisha a a minute to think about this. The one I really worry about is Kroger. I didn't think Kroger was a great business, but during the pandemic, they've done really, really well. And I'll say they're doing all the right things. They're taking the cash they're bringing in and they're investing it in diversifying their business, a third-party market place, new concepts, new formats. I'm just not convinced those things are going to work. And they're competing with Amazon, Walmart, and Target. That's a really difficult place to be. So I'm not saying Kroger is going to be a bust. I'm saying they just have a much harder path. Simon, any thoughts on this one? Uh, this is a great question, Max. You know, I, I thank you for for posting it here. I, I think that the correct answer right now is to be determined for me. I think Kroger is a great answer, Dan, but you know, all the, the companies that you mentioned in that tweet are technology companies. And they run that land and expand model where you you put a whole bunch of people on the platform and then you sell them more over time. I think that the user growth is going to slow uh, as people are returning back to work. But I think that also the expansion of the people that got added will continue to go up too. So I'm not sure I have the right answer yet. I think it's something that we keep an eye on and um, we evolve as investors based on what the market tells us. Yeah, it's... uh... You know, look, the pandemic has changed some habits and there's definitely like there might be some takeout based restaurants that are doing really well now that aren't going to do as well. But there also might be some cyclicality to that where all the places you went during the worst of the pandemic, you, you skip for three or four months and then eventually you cycle them back in. We have one specifically for Manisha here. It's uh, it's from Vishwes Sankolar, Sankolkar. I apologize for not uh, pronouncing that correctly. Uh, would love to hear at Manisha Sammy's thoughts on NTRA. I first heard of this company through a friend and then read about the technology in ARC Big Ideas 2020 presentation. Manisha, your thoughts here. Sure. So Natera is a genetic uh, diagnostic company. Uh, so what uh, these genetic diagnostic companies do is they leverage uh, the technology, so DNA sequencing, and they analyze different uh, genetic components uh, to basically assess the predisposition um, that someone uh, has for certain genetic diseases. Um, they started off working with NIPT, so before a family is thinking about conceiving, checking you know potential um, uh heritable diseases that the child may carry. Uh, So that's where they started off. Um, Part of the reason why Natera is very interesting now is because of companies like Illumina, PacBio, these sequencing companies, um, the cost curve has been coming down exponentially. So in 2003, um, it cost $1.3 million. Now we're just under $1,000. And by 2023, uh, we do expect the cost of sequencing a whole human genome to uh, uh, come down to about approximately $100. Now with Natera, um, so they're using that technology. It's very interesting. Um, I think their closest competitor would be Invite. So when you're comparing these companies, you have to look at how many genes are they actually looking at. The human body r- has roughly 20,000 genes. 
Um, so that is the first thing that you should look at. Um, how comprehensive is it? Because it might, there definitely is a price discrepancy. Um, but then it's looking at how, uh, how much can you actually um, believe in the report? The second thing that they're doing, so this is also very interesting to me. Uh, so Invitae recently acquired um, Archer Diagnostics, which is a liquid biopsy company. And um, so they are, so the way that liquid biopsies work is with a blood draw, you're able to analyze uh, maybe any uh, tumor shed that you might have. So uh, each year you have about 200,000 people having immunotherapy. So with this type of DNA, you can help guide which therapy to use for uh, cancer patients. So Natera is also working on ctDNA. Um, so right now, you know, that's a really interesting area where you have two companies working on very similar things. Um, now the question is, which one's going to prevail, uh, which has a larger uh, penetration rate into the genetic diagnostic market. Now, Simon, I want you to go even deeper. No, of course not. This is why we have <laughs> this is why we have a diverse team. We all have different areas of expertise because, look, there's no investing team that could come out and give you that answer and then pivot uh, to some of the questions. We're going to talk about the Airbnb IPO coming up uh, uh, in our, in our down the stretch segment. We're also going to going to say hello to Tigeram watching us in Dubai, all the way from Dubai. Hey, we totally appreciate it. Simon, last viewer question, uh, last person that shared a question with us on Twitter that I'm going to throw out there today. MAD Investment says, maybe you touched on this area before, but a topic that would be interesting is how can I get the whole family involved in investing? Um, Simon, this is not one that's been successful in my house. How, how are you going to go about this? Well, Mad Investing, I've got the solution for you right here, which is some bedtime reading. You know, as soon as kids can start looking at pictures and pointing at words, you give them the innovator's dilemma from Clayton Christensen. I think that's a great way to start. Um, if Simon, we went with the hungry caterpillar. There's there's a little bit of supply and demand in that, but it's not really investing. You got to start them early, Dan. You never know when they're going to pick it up. Uh, the, 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 the actual answer that I, I think is a great one is, is have your kids involved in the decisions that you're making on their behalf. So like if you're having setting up a 529 plan for college, uh, do a lot of the early legwork and present them with three options to invest in their college fund and explain each one of them to them. Say, hey, which one of these three do you think we should be investing in for your future college? I think that works really well. And just conversations about allowance and savings and investing at the higher level, I think goes a long way with kids. It's something I try to talk about with my son when it comes to consumerism. When he's looking at, you know, the the two hundred dollar pair of Nikes, and I say, eh, "Your feet are still growing. We're not spending more than a hundred dollars on sneakers." That's about as close as investing. Uh, Manisha, no pressure here, because do you have anyone in your family younger than you that you talk about investing with, or even frankly, older people who aren't necessarily as interested in the subject? Sure. So um, I'm the youngest, so I can't say anyone younger. Uh, but when it comes to, well, my mom actually is very new to investing. So I usually talk to her about, you know, what do I do as an occupation? So she's very interested. I think what really reeled her in is, oh, you can actually make money. Um, so sure. kind of sharing with her, you know, this is how much I invested. And, you know, two years later, this is where my portfolio is at. Um, she's, she's very excited. So, I mean, she started off with, you know, here's investment, can you invest for me? Um, so that's how it started. But then slowly it's kind of nudging her, you know, read a little bit more. Um, here's kind of, here's how the stock market works. So kind of very basic, but I think you just have to talk about it a lot. And when it comes to parents, I think they're generally interested in what their kids are doing. So that's my way in. <laughs> 
one of the biggest challenges is fighting fear. There's obviously people who have, have lost money in the market, but generally people are losing money because they got like a tip from their friend and they bought a stock and then they sold it two weeks later. We preach buy and hold investing here at 7investing. And Simon, many of the people are members. If you'd like to join, how can you do that? And there is one way you can save money doing that. Sure. Yeah. So we're always uh, welcoming new members. Uh, seveninvesting.com slash subscribe is how you can sign up uh, for a new membership. Uh, you can go to seveninvesting.com slash recommendations and immediately get access to all of our previous picks. Uh, you can filter them based on your investing interests. And we make all of those immediately available. We also have new customer welcome calls. So right when you sign up, please take advantage of joining uh, the entire team together as we talk on Zoom about our previous recommendations, how our platform is laid out, and how you can make the most of your membership. The second part of your question, Dan, is how can you actually get that even cheaper is the referral program that we offer. Manisha, would you actually help me out on this? Would you explain what our referral program means and what that actually is? Sure, it's pretty neat, um, in my opinion. So basically, if you're already a subscriber, um, if you share your referral link, uh, to your friends, family members, and they sign up uh, for it, they get the first month free and then the person with the referral code gets that month free. Um, so we recently actually had a subscriber uh, who had five different um, uh, people use his link to subscribe to 7investing and now he has five months free of um, not only the research that we provide, uh, so several recommendations each month, but also the subscriber calls and he has access to all seven of us uh, whenever he has questions. So I think that's pretty neat. Um, and, you know, five months free and all you have to do is uh, share a referral code. And of course, you get it for $10 if you get a referral code. It is free. Yeah. You get a free month for the person who who's sharing the code. The new person signing up gets a deal on our subscriptions. We share them all the time on our Twitter because uh, we like to support our community. Guys, now it's time to move on to what we're watching. That's the segment of the show where each of you picks a story, and we've got two really good ones. Simon's going to talk about Airbnb. When we get to Manisha, she's going to talk about using DNA as storage. I literally had no idea that was a thing. Airbnb is one I know a little bit more about, but Simon and Airbnb, they filed their S1. I thought the numbers looked great. Yeah, we have a prospectus now, which means they're going to do the IPO probably in December here, Dan. Great news if you've been following the Airbnb as a private unicorn for a long time. They're finally going to be going public. And they did make money this year, which is what you said. Uh, the thing that stood out to me in the prospectus and also following this company for a long time has really been how they've been fostering the network effect. They know that they're a platform that's matching up buyers um, or rather uh, hosts and guests of their properties. And because they want to foster that trust, they know they need to start building up those relationships. And so how have they done that in the time of COVID? Well, they put aside a fund that they actually were reimbursing hosts for canceled trips that happened because of COVID. Um, in the S1, they laid out that they're going to actually be gifting shares of stock to their long-term hosts as a thank you for sticking around the platform so long. We've heard kind of some chatter about a loyalty program similar to the Marriott royalty, um, loyalty rewards programs that you're used to with hotel chains. And so what is this doing? This is building out that network effect that's so important for platforms like these. Airbnb is a company that's definitely on my radar. I'm really looking forward to seeing what the valuation is pegged out for this IPO coming up pretty soon. So Simon, let me make a comment. First, Private Unicorn, by far my favorite G.I. Joe character. Second, <laughs> uh, Airbnb. They actually made money last quarter. That has to bode well for how they're going to do post-pandemic. 
Yeah, I mean, the questions going forward on this is going to be uh, two things, I think. Uh, first of all, I've used Airbnb for years and have been very happy with it. Uh, I think that the two uh, things we... I've had mixed experiences. We've ah, had, okay, Dan. We've yes. had more than one where the photos were taken in like 1984 and then the actual... And then we had one where everything was what it was, but it was like really art deco and no surface was comfortable to sit on. So you couldn't really <laughs> complain, but so you really do have to do your homework, but read all the comments because sometimes a bad Airbnb will hide the bad comments by layering on a bunch of good ones. So you do have to do your due diligence, but it is a great product and I do use it all the time. Simon, fair apologies. enough, Dan. And, and to be fair with it too, there have been some stinkers mixed in there with the good ones as well. So true point. Uh, the two things though that I'm watching as an investor, which I think are very important is one, how many hosts are we actually going to get to use Airbnb? We got the early adopters that are right by the conference halls and are right by the vacation places, but how many people are ultimately going to be signing up for this platform and how much demand can they actually get out of this? 79% um, of the hosts that they have actually approached Airbnb themselves organically, zero marketing to attract them, and 23% of the new hosts in 2020 have come on because they were actually previously guests. So good figures up front. We'll see if they can maintain those over time. The second thing that I'm looking at as an investor is what's the take rate going to look like for this platform? Take rate is the revenue that Airbnb collects divided by the total booking volume that takes place on its platform. And so this past year, they made $38 billion of total booking volume. They booked $4.8 billion of revenue. So that's about a 12.6% take rate. That's very good. And compared to a company like Booking.com, which does similar online travel agency um, online reservations, this is where I think that you want to start seeing Airbnb booking additional things. You go to the platform to book the room, but then you add the event that's taking place really close by. You actually book an Uber directly on Airbnb. More transactions means higher take rate. That's the metric I'm looking at going forward as an investor. Yeah, they do some of that really well. That said, I have largely not used it. Uh, you know, it, it, it every time you book something, it will give you, do you want to have dinner here? Do you want to go on this tour there? And that's usually because in my case, if I'm going someplace, I'm going there for a reason. I know why I'm going to be there, but I think there's a ton of optionality there. We're going to move on from something I understand to something I completely don't understand. Manisha, Microsoft and a bunch of companies have an alliance to use to create DNA storage. Is this literally like I can put my family photos and store them on DNA? Like th this blew my mind when I started looking into this. That's exactly right. Um, actually, uh, before I go into exactly what happened in the news part, um, there is a there's a lab at uh, the Weiss Institute uh, at Harvard, and they were able to store a moving picture of a galloping horse in DNA. So the DNA that's you know in me and you. Um, there's a movie, there's a motion picture that can be encoded. So how does this actually work? Um, so as we know, with storage, everything is binary, right? Zeros and ones. Uh, when it comes to DNA, we have four nucleotides, A, T, G, C. Um, so what DNA synthesis does is uh, basically uh, a combination of two of these nucleotides is the equivalent to a one or a zero. Um, so that is the encoding mechanism. And then you would use DNA sequencing to decode that information. So there's a process of synthesizing. So that would be um, actually the encoding. And then the decoding portion is using uh, DNA sequencing. So this effort started back in 2015. Um, and it's still a few years away. Um, I would say, you know, definitely uh, in a decade, uh, we should be seeing kind of some companies using DNA-based storage. Um, I would say within the next five years, 
um, we'll see a huge improvement right now. Uh, it is a bit cost prohibitive, and that's why we're seeing this alliance. So we have Twist Biosciences. Uh, Twist Biosciences, so they do DNA synthesis um, on silicon chips. So DNA synthesis, uh, if you look at it historically, it's basically 12 cents per nucleotide. So that can be very expensive. So if you're thinking massive amounts of da uh, data, that can be millions of dollars. Um, and then we have Illumina. So Illumina is doing the uh, decoding, right? So the DNA uh, sequencing portion, and we've seen a huge cost reduction based on their technology. Um, the reason why they're important, a part, uh, an important part of this alliance is uh, not only for the decoding aspect of it, so you can actually see and read uh, the data that you've stored, uh, but also if there's even a 1% error rate in reading it, you, you know, your movie, you know, the ending will start off first and then, you know, the beginning portion will be the end and, or it may not make sense. So you need to have close to 100% accuracy, right? So that's very important. And then you have Microsoft um, and Western Digital as uh, part of the alliance, you know, they're, um, they know everything about data and storage needs. Uh, so that's very important. Um, one of the important reasons why we've gone towards DNA-based storage is the amount of data that we're producing um, as a society um, at this point. Um, and we need better data storage mechanisms. Now, so some, some of this is longevity, right? Just like we went through that period, like our film was degrading. And I know that like old radio shows, it's really tricky to, to you have to like heat them up and then remaster mm -hmm. them. So this is about having sort of something that eventually can take up very little space and last mm -hmm. more or less forever. Am I reading that correctly? Exactly. So DNA can withstand very harsh conditions, um, whether it's extreme cold, extreme heat, um, Right now, with you know standard hard drive or hard disk, say, I mean, we struggle to um, keep the integrity for you know even a hundred years. With DNA, it could be thousands of years, and you have that DNA. And not only that, but it's so dense. Um, so, in one gram of DNA, you can store two hundred and fourteen petabytes of data. So that's two hundred fourteen times ten to the fifteen uh, bytes of data. So that is amazing. And then visually, if you want to think about that, a normal bottle of water could hold the equivalent of 200 million uh, MacBooks worth of data. And so, Anisha, so do I just put this in my DNA VCR? Like how, how is this going to work from a practical point of view in accessing data? So I think that is something that we're trying to work out. Um, obviously, no one's going to have a huge sequencing machine in their homes. Um, so I think that needs to miniaturize. Um, so that's the hardware aspect. So miniaturizing sequencing, also miniaturizing um, the uploading of information. I don't think it's going to start in the home front. It's going to start off in kind of large corporations uh, storing data. Might be my thinking is it's going to be a centralized process in the beginning, um, and we'll see kind of how that goes. Um, and I think Simon, you might have a few. Uh, thoughts about this as well. I think it's fascinating, Manisha. I mean, like we built the entire computing industry on silicon chips, right? Binary zeros and ones to store information and then access that. And that's led to these things like cloud computing and artificial intelligence and everything we're talking about. You are rewriting, what you're describing here is rewriting a new IT industry. I mean, synthetic biology is rewriting the rules of what a new IT industry could be built upon. It's not even synthetic biology, this is synthetic DNA at this point, where we're building kind of from the base pairs up. Uh, this 
is something that's largely academic, as you mentioned, Manisha, but the implications are trillions of dollars out there. It's fascinating to me. This is one of those stories that uh, we're going to have to keep with. Manisha's having some connective, connectivity issues, so I'm going to address a couple of comments in the queue here. Uh, Eric Down says, uh, what are the team's thoughts on Bitcoin and MicroStrategy stock performance? We're going to talk about this on a future show. We're going to do a Bitcoin podcast, or MicroStrategy's not one I'm familiar with. This is something that we get asked about a lot. I personally don't consider investing in Bitcoin. Simon, is it something you, uh, you've given any thought to? Absolutely. This is an, on, really on my radar right now. Great question, Eric. MicroStrategy is actually putting their corporate treasury out of cash and into Bitcoin. They're tired of the exchange rates of moving money between countries. They said, you know what? We're not getting any return on our cash in the bank. Let's go put it in Bitcoin. And they've been handsomely rewarded by this. And this is something that not only MicroStrategy has done, but we've seen Square do, right? Cash App is, is um now allowed for the trading of Bitcoin. And this has been a huge volume for this company. Uh, Square is also putting money in corporate treasuries in Bitcoin. So Bitcoin has gone from kind of this goofy thing that, that nobody heard about, except for the people that were living in their grandma's basements, to a couple of years later, their grandmas were buying Bitcoin and not knowing what they were supposed to do with it. And now it's embraced uh, in, the, in the corporate world. The corporate world is embracing blockchains and Bitcoins for new transactions. They're unlocking value that's flowing down to shareholders. Great question. I think that this is something that we really need to be paying more attention to. And equity holders, uh, stock market investors um, should be paying more attention to what's going on with cryptocurrencies. So perhaps Simon will rethink my request to put our corporate treasury into Starbucks rewards points. I think it's it's the currency of the future. No, just kidding. Manisha is back. So we are going to move on to what I'm calling the home stretch. We've been working on naming this feature, but I am calling it the home stretch. Uh, and maybe eventually we'll get that sound effect, the down the stretch they come sound effect. But I wanted to talk a little bit about Tesla joining the S&P 500. Simon, people are really, really excited about this. What does it mean and how is it going to happen? So there's about $11 trillion of institutional money in the United States alone that either directly mirrors or attempts to directly mirror the S&P 500 index. Uh, this means there's either fund managers that are actively managing or there's passive uh, ETFs built upon it that, that mirror that index automatically. And so JP Morgan has already put out an estimate that just by Tesla being in the S&P 500 index, uh, it's going to result in about $34 billion of Tesla stock being added to those index, to those uh, passive and active funds that track it. And so this is kind of a transactional thing, Dan. This isn't something that it really impacts Tesla's company by being in the S&P 500. Uh, it's definitely large enough to be part of the S&P, but the committee kind of balked at this for a while because Tesla had in, um, unstable profits. And so they finally gave the thumbs up. They said, okay, you're part of the index now, and it's gonna transactionally have a big impact on institutional investors for sure. It's also gonna be logistically tricky and they might have to do it in multiple steps. Um, this is one of those things that was inevitable, but I will point out, it's kind of a badge of honor, but it doesn't sell any cars. It doesn't change anything about your investing thesis. Before we move into the finisher here, I'm gonna throw- Can one I add one more thing on that yeah, too, Dan? If you absolutely, don't mind. go ahead. Just one more thing. The impact I think that it might have uh, is Elon now has a more valuable company and he has options available on how he wants to raise cash 
based on Tesla being in the five in the S and P five hundred now. And so, uh, Mr. Musk, if you're watching our show, I would I would highly recommend you consider doing convertible debt right now. You're getting a premium valuation on your stock in the market, and uh, you can tap into that to raise a two or three billion dollars. Um, to build more gigafactories across the world. This is, I think, a great time for Tesla to start considering raising some more cash um, because there's a lot of positive news and a premium valuation right now that the stock's getting. I'll point out that right when this became a possibility, when they hit the fourth quarter of profitability in a row, they did raise, I believe the number was $5 billion to, uh, to retire some of that debt. But uh, Simon, this, this question is no longer on my screen, so I'm going to paraphrase it. I'll actually ask Manisha to answer it first. But at what point do we look at a stock we had high conviction on uh, and say that it's not working out as planned and now it's time to sell? Um, not something I do very often. Manisha, how do you evaluate that in your, your picks or your personal portfolio? Sure. Uh, so I am long only investing. Uh, so I only invest in companies that have high conviction on uh, and so if I'm thinking about selling out of a company or if it's not performing the way that I was expecting it to, I think the key thing is to recognize and identify the reasons why. Uh, is it because of just, you know, market volatility? Um, if that's the case, then, you know, especially when it comes to therapeutic companies or genomics companies, it's just a volatile uh, industry. So sometimes it'll go up or it might crash, you know, 30 percent in one day and for no good reason. If that's the rationale and uh, my thesis stands, then I will continue on with that company. But if it's thesis breaking, for example, we learn that the technology itself does not work or there are huge safety concerns uh, and they didn't realize until further down the road. If it breaks the thesis, that's when I will uh, cut the cord. So it really depends on the reason why uh, it's not working and performing. Simon, I'm going to give you the last word here, but I want to throw in my case. For me, it's about why it's not working. So let's say maybe there was a management change and I, I don't like the new CEO. Well, maybe then I would sell. The other one is what if there's a big strategy change? And the example I always give is when Starbucks changed CEOs, they decided they were going to walk away from their premium strategy for a while. And that was something I really believed in for growth. So that caused me to take a look at the company and say, okay, what are they doing instead? And what they did instead was focus on productivity and making the process as efficient as possible. Well, that proved to be pretty genius. They didn't know a pandemic was coming, but it's helped them quite a bit during the pandemic. Simon, your thoughts here. I, I think that you and Manisha said it perfectly, that it comes down to the execution of the management team. Um, broadly speaking, stocks go up or down based on three things. Um, one, fundamentals. Two, the valuation multiples on those fundamentals. And three, dividends. Uh, Looking at dividends first, if, if Exxon cuts its dividend completely right now, that's going to anger a lot of investors and the stock's going to sell off. And, and, you know, the valuation multiples are up to the market to decide what price per sales multiple are we going to play on cloud computing stocks? And that's kind of out of the hands of, of management. But the thing that management can control is kind of how well its business is performing. How well is it investing in R&D for future growth? How efficiently is it spending its sales and marketing spend? And that kind of impacts those fundamentals of cash flows, of earnings, whatever it is that they're reporting out there. And so I agree with, with you and Manisha. I think that you look at the execution and the management team and if they're doing what they're saying they're going to do, because that's most in their control as, as managers of these companies. Let's take one last question from friend to the program, Joey Klein. 
Uh, this goes back to what we were talking about with Tesla and the S&P 500. Don't most of those big institutional investors also have ways of buying shares in small batches at a time so as not to affect the stock price too much anyways? Uh, I believe they can trickle their purchase, but when you're there's a lot of institutional investors. This is going to impact or has impacted the price of Tesla. Simon, is this something you can illuminate on? Uh, not too much. I mean, it's, I don't want to put too much under the microscope of the, the individual requirements from institutional investors. I, I tend to honestly, Dan, just look at $11 trillion that's mirroring the S&P 500. Right now. This is the largest index in American capital. Um, so that's going to be a big win for Tesla. Guys, now it is time to hit our finisher. Sam Bailey, if you want to share the graphic, we asked this question on Twitter. Amazon has launched a pharmacy with free delivery for Prime members. This was a long time coming. Can it become a major player in this space? The vast majority of you said yes. 78.2 said yes. 8% no. 8% said no. 13.8% said too soon to tell. Manisha Sammy, this is your area of expertise. Do you think people are going to wait two days for their prescriptions? That's the part that, you know, like if I, if I go to the doctor and I'm not feeling well, they give me a prescription. I go to CVS. I have it like an hour. That's kind of the breaking point on this for me. But what are your thoughts? I think it really, and I think you hit the nail on the head. Um, it will become a pretty big, uh, big player, but I think it's going to be for those types of medications that people take chronically. So whether it be um, diabetes medication or uh, blood pressure, if it's something where it's kind of acute and you go into the doctor and you need it today, um, I don't think Amazon is for you, unless you're in regions where they do, um, you know, for prime members, you have kind of free one day delivery. So the day of, so if they're able to get it to uh, that level, then yes, um, it would make sense. Um, especially since if you don't have insurance uh, for a certain uh, prescription medication, they offer up to 80% discounts for prime members. So I think that is a pretty significant deal. Yeah, and that touches on something Mark Hammer says. I think prospects of Amazon's entrance into the pharmacy business may be taking a toll on GDRX. That's good RX. Yeah, uh, a lot of, of pharmacy-related stocks took a big hit yesterday, but there's a lot that has to play out here. There, we do not have our answer yet. Simon, I'll give you the last word here. Yeah, Dan, I really enjoyed uh, – you did a podcast interview a, a week ago on, about the American Customer Satisfaction Index, and you mentioned Costco in that. And I think that Amazon Prime is a modern-day Costco – we pay a fee up, up front, um, it falls directly to the operating bottom line. And um, Amazon is going to make everything as, as cheap as possible or give you as much as possible to keep you engaged and to keep you sticking with that. And I think this is another example of that. I, I think they're going to do it right. So I probably would have voted yes for the survey. I, yeah, I agree. Yes, too. It is a little bit of a different business model than Costco because Amazon has an incremental cost in delivering you things. The more you use Prime, sort of the less they make on that membership, whereas Costco they charge for everything that's in addition to that membership. So any of their delivery options, you're paying extra for. So it's a little bit different. But Amazon Prime locks you into buying from Amazon. And as someone who gets, I don't know, two or three Amazon deliveries most days, uh, I think it's working. Guys, that's the end of the show. If people want to get in touch with us, if you want to suggest ideas, if you want to ask us questions, if you want to tell us how great we are, we always appreciate that. You can get to us two ways. That's info at seveninvesting.com. That's our email. Uh, Steve Symington is usually checking that. He'll pass that on to the relevant member of our team. We are always looking for feedback, ideas, suggestions for shows, things we could do to make the service better. And of course, we are obsessively on Twitter. The best way to hit us on Twitter is at seven investing that is the number seven investing thank you for watching seven investing now we'll be back friday at noon the show monday wednesday friday at noon our podcast drops tuesday and thursday i hate when people say drops it releases on <laughs> tuesday and thursday guys folks 
That's all. Thank you for watching. We will see you on Friday. program may hold positions in the companies that are mentioned. Buying and selling stock carries financial risk, which could include the loss of capital. The views in this program should not be taken as personalized advice. Before acting on any of the information provided, listeners are encouraged to consult a financial or tax professional.